Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. But before we get started with today's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Rosie Saxon. She's the UK's first female UFC fighter, but five years ago, she retired from MMA competition. Her last fight was on Cage Warriors against now UFC champion Joyner, and I'm probably destroyed his name, Jeff? Jedrzejczyk, I think. (laughs) So welcome onto the show, Rosie. Uh, yeah, well, hello there. Um, it's a pleasure to be be here. Uh, pleasure to be talking to you. Um, so before we delve into today's episode, Rosie, can you talk about probably your starting sport and why you kind of turned your head into mixed martial arts? So I was I was not at all a sporty kid at school. Um, I was um, I was a total nerd. Always have my head stuck in a textbook. Um, a bit socially awkward, you know, that sort of thing. Um, like I said, I didn't take sport at all. And it wasn't until I, I became a teenager, I was probably about 13, 14, when I got interested in martial arts. And I suppose initially I was drawn to it, as a lot of people are, because I wanted to learn some self-defence. Um, I wanted to know that, you know, if worst came to worst and I got attacked or something like that, I would I would have some options, you know. And that's what drew me to it in the first place. So I actually started out in Taekwondo just because uh, that was what was what was there at the time. Um I did that for a few years. When I got to university I tried a few different martial arts. I sort of figured out by that time that taekwondo wasn't the be-all and end-all of self-defense so um i did a few other things um and eventually i got to the point where i was going through a bit of a crisis of confidence and i i'd learned a a lot of stuff but i wasn't convinced that when push came to shove, I'd really be able to use that in a fight situation and i suppose the the question that was going through my head was I know all of this, but can I fight? And um, it was around about that time that I saw a documentary about mixed martial arts. At the time, this was back in 1999, I think, it was a very new sport. It was something that was, it was a niche within a niche, really. It was, um, martial artists were starting to talk about, they'd had the first few UFCs out in America, um, and a few people had sort of taken that idea and developed their own events and their own um, competitions based on that. So you're starting to see the start of that sport growing in the UK. And when I saw that documentary, I immediately thought, that's something I want to have a go at. Um, just to challenge myself, really, just to prove to myself that I could do it. And my idea was always I'm going to have a couple of fights just to prove I can do it and then I'm just going to carry on with the rest of my life and um, at the time I was I was doing PhD in computer science um, and I suppose I had this idea that I was going to end up working either in academia or in IT or something like that anyway um, I, I got interested in mixed martial arts. I started doing some training. At the time, there wasn't really a female mixed martial arts scene, certainly not in the UK, and barely at all. There were, there were a few fights we had in America. I think the first time I really saw women's fights taking place, I got a DVD of um, an event that I think took place in about 2002. Um, and that's when I first sort of thought, actually, this, is, this could be... This could be bigger than I'd imagined. So that's when I started looking around for fights. I had my first fight in 2002, and I got hooked by the sport. There was something about it. I want to see how good I can get at this. And so one thing led to another, and then that developed into a professional fight career that took me all over the world. And eventually, um, I ended up being the first British woman to fight in the UFC. So, sort of, it, it, the sport grew up around me, if you like. 
it was um, when I when I first started, it was a very small thing. Nobody at that point got into mixed martial arts because they wanted to become rich or famous because there just didn't seem to be that possibility there. And then sort of over time, the sport grew and eventually it got to the point I was um, it was quite surreal in a way because the amount of attention that the sport was getting and that I was getting at the time, um, it wasn't something that I'd ever anticipated. Um, so it was, I mean, it was a hell of a roller coaster, really. Was, uh... And Rosie, you talk about the early days. Obviously, most people that watch it nowadays would be familiar with the Octagon, but even in the late 90s, early 2000s, you 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 well I I quote me if I'm wrong. Would it have still been boxing rings that you'd have been fighting in back then, or is that? So it was, it was a real mishmash of different rule types, different um, different environments. I mean, there was some some of my fights were in a boxing ring. Uh, I mean, there was one that was just on an open mat area, um, like with a, a judo competition or something like that. Um, so I mean, back then there weren't standardised weight classes. The rules varied from one promotion to another. So you know, it was always depending on where you were fighting. Um, it was it, not nearly as as organised or as structured as it is nowadays. And I mean, the training was the same. It was back then people were trying to figure out how this sport worked. And you know, you'd have one person from karate and another person who did some judo and just get in the fight and, and see what happens, see what works. And that was that was always the idea behind the um, the early UFCs. It's like, well, let's um, test out the different fighting styles and see whose is the best. Um, and obviously, sort of as time went on, people started to realise that actually the, the people who were doing the best were the ones who could mix bits of different styles. You know, they, they knew a bit about striking, they knew a bit about grappling they knew how to how to wrestle and they could put all these elements together and so sort of as time has gone on you've seen the sport develop to the point where now fighters are all training very similar things they're they're all training some striking some wrestling some ground fighting and I mean obviously there's still individual styles within that and there's individual there's different fighters have different ways of combining those things um but the basis for what people are doing is is more similar than different nowadays but i think you raised a good point there with like the early days with there being to some degree no structure and no conformity between promotions talk to me what kind of mindset you have to adapt as an athlete back then to be able to switch from one to the other because that's got to cause some problems I mean, again, it was the sort of thing because I think nowadays people, the training is much more structured and people have a much better idea of how it works. Back then, everyone was still trying to figure it out. So you'd have people who are training a bit of boxing and a bit of jiu-jitsu and then they'd just put them together. And nowadays that looks crazy. You kind of go, well, how is it that people didn't realise there was a whole bit in the middle? Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, people then it was sort of you train a few different martial arts and then you try and combine those sort of on the fly if you like and it's the same thing I think because you'd find yourself in different environments and people were trying to work out how this worked while they were in there rather than I mean now um or sort of towards the the latter end of my career it would the training was much more structured and you go in there with a strategy and a game plan and you know how you're going to use the environment, how you're going to use the fence, things like that. Um, like I say, it was in the early days before people had, had worked these things out and worked out the best way to do these things. You see I mean, people trying all kinds of crazy stuff um, to see if it worked. And, uh, you know, you, you'd find things that worked for you or things that didn't. And, Again, I mean, you've seen the, 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 the just the standard of competition has uh, within the last decade or so has just gone through the roof. You know, when you um, mixed martial arts become so much bigger and more people have been training, um, you've had the coaches and people have had much more time to figure out what works well and what doesn't. And out so of the it, sports, yeah, sorry to cut you sports off. Sports evolved massively over that time. Um, and out of interest. 
what is kind of what you like this, the the styles you adopted early days and had to kind of fine tune out of interest i mean i i really took to the grappling game i i love jiu-jitsu uh, i still do love jiu-jitsu I, I mean that's that's the bit that i still train nowadays so um but that was that was really what drew me to it and the the intricacy of the the ground game and i think that was uh that was the bit that I always enjoyed most. And for me, it was very much a case of you know, getting hold of somebody, getting them to the ground, and then sticking a submission on, an arm lock, a choke, like that. That was always how I liked to do things. Um, and then obviously, sort of towards the middle of my career, you got to the point where people people knew much more about groundwork. It wasn't back like back in the in the days when if you knew how to do an armbar then you were something special you know that time had gone and it became much harder to take people down because everyone started to learn a bit about takedown defense so then the game evolved but we had to get much better at wrestling um you had to get much better at mixing up the the striking and the and the wrestling as well so you had to start learning to hide the your entries into into takedowns and things like that and that crossover point between the boxing and the wrestling game that got really interesting um and that's something that i had to learn as i went along because it 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 evolved while i was doing the sport so by the time i sort of got towards the end of my career um things were much more sort of towards where they are now where i mean nowadays you have kids who are starting out training mixed martial arts you know they, they didn't start out as a grappler or as a striker or you know as a, a boxer or a karate guy you have people who come you know the first the, their first experience is turning up at a mixed martial arts gym and doing a bit of everything and learning to put these things together from the word go and those kids are now getting to the point where they're you know they're, they're starting to fight and they're they're a whole different animal from the fighters back in the early days that started out with with a speciality and then had to broaden their broaden their repertoire from there. I get you. I get what you mean completely. It's it's you could say to a certain essence, and it's kind of become what well, is a sport in itself, but yeah, become yeah, a yeah. discipline where you could tie alongside any of the others. Yes, I mean, I think it's it is now a discipline in its own right. It was it's it's not just um, it's not a style versus style thing anymore. It's it's become its own thing, and I think, like I say, you, we're now seeing the the generation that's that's grown up with that, and uh, they're a whole different breed of fighters. So it's um, it's I mean, it's been exciting to watch that evolution of the sport and to be to be part of that as well. You know, to be there at the time when that's going on. That was uh, it's I mean, I think with a lot of sports, because they've been around for so long, people have already figured out the best ways of doing things. And I think to see a sport sort of grow from nothing to the point where mixed martial arts is today, that's been that's been really exciting to follow. And you alluded to earlier, you'd done a PhD in computer science. What were kind of some of the difficulties of balancing something so academic with trying to become an up-and-coming athlete? So, I mean, I was the PhD was that was in my very early days as a fighter. So I, I was juggling the two things, um, but I think by the time I got to taking the the mixed martial arts seriously. Um, that was after I'd, I'd finished that. But I think that I mean, there's always a difficulty with with balancing being being an athlete with just about anything else because obviously when you're when you're doing something, it pays to be very single minded, um, very selfish if you like about it. Being an athlete is fundamentally quite a selfish endeavour because you need to focus on what you're doing. You know, your your training, your eating you're sleeping um and that's got that comes first you know when you've got a fight coming up um you've you've got to prioritize all of those things and sometimes that can be that makes fighters very difficult to live with i think because um i said when you when you're training a couple of times a day you're always tired you're always hungry because you're trying to make weight class um 
I say it's very hard to focus on much else, you know, whether that's um, other aspects of your life, because uh, most most fighters, certainly below sort of the top levels, are not full time fighters. They have other jobs as well. Uh, that was always the case for me. I had other things going on in my life, and as well as being a parent. So you know, you you're trying to deal with all those other things, and then concentrate on the fighting. And I think that's always a um, a difficult balancing act. I, people often ask me, oh, "What tips do you have?" And you, you've just got to get good at um, surfing the chaos, if you like. Um, there's, there's. I want there to be a, a nice, easy answer to that question, and there just isn't. Um, it's, it's always a case of you know you try and keep all the plates spinning, but there will always be one or two things that drop out and you know when you've got a fight coming out everything else you know sort of goes on hold a little bit and then you try and pick that up you know afterwards and it's it never feels quite satisfactory it's uh, I think almost getting used to that and coming to terms with the fact that it will never feel quite good enough is uh, is the best advice I can give people I think and, and more recently, Rose, you've turned your hand to ost- to being an osteopath. Mm-hmm. Is that something you had in the back of your mind, even in your fighting days, or is it something that kind of materialised, well, I wouldn't say on a whim, because that's probably a bit too harsh, but is it something that it was maybe an afterthought towards maybe retirement, or can you explain where it kind of fitted in t- for you t- more specifically? So, um, I first got interested in sports injuries while I was doing mixed martial arts. Um, in fact, I think there's a direct correlation there. So, <laughs> it's one of those things. You, see, you tend to see a lot of injuries around you, and I, I had a few myself. And that's when I got interested in finding out a bit more about how the body works, how to recover from these injuries, because... And one of the things I found is that a lot of um, sports injury professionals were not terribly either sympathetic or particularly helpful for combat sports athletes. And very often you'd get the response, maybe you shouldn't do that. Um, and it's like, well, I, I am going to do it, so can you just tell me how to fix the shoulder? Um, and I mean, it was always difficult to find somebody who was on the right page with that sort of thing. So a lot of the, the, the time... I'd start thinking, well, okay, how can, how do I rehab this? How do I get this injury to the point where I can train or to the point where I can I can perform? And so I started reading around it and things like that. And it, quite quickly, you realise that actually, reading up on this isn't going to be good enough. I need to I need to go and learn some things about it. And so I started out. I did a sports therapy course to start with. Um, it's quite a short course. It was I. I Learned lots of stuff, but then got to the end of that and kind of go, I want to know more. And that's when I signed up to go back to university. Um, I mean, osteopathy is a five-year degree course, five years part-time. So I signed up for that. And that was while I was still fighting. So I was I was doing that and competing at the same time and training. Um, and I graduated in 2010. Um, again, I was still sort of mid-fight career at that point so I I mean I did some I, I was working part-time I, I I did a little bit of uh, of work I as an associate at a different practice and I did a bit of work by myself um but uh, obviously there's a limit to how much time and energy I could put into that with the fight as well so I concentrated on that and then once I retired in 2014 that's when I thought well actually I want to do this properly now I want to set up my own clinic and and develop that so that's what I've been doing over the last four years um since since I retired and uh, I said it's it's been really exciting actually I think one of the nice things about it is because a lot of the time with I suppose with any any professional sport any sport at all when you retire there's always the question of well what what do I do afterwards and that's that's a difficult question. I mean, that's a that was a difficult time. I think it was. I'm really glad that I had something that I was excited about going on to do, because that that helped me a lot. Um, and even then, it was still difficult. You know, I I still miss competing. I miss that all the time. But 
the fact that I've got something that I'm excited about building, um, that uh, that definitely um, it it changes the way I look at it. It's like I, I don't look at it as the end of something. It's more going on to um, to a different part of my life. And you talk about you were studying while you were fighting. Do you believe that it somewhat gave you an advantage because you were able to understand the body that much better than, say, the other fighters? Or do you think it was more, you were, instead of saying, trying to overcome things and rehabbing actual injuries, you were able to actually prehab everything and, and, and thus limit the impacts of probably the injury and it, what that may impact on you being out of training, not being able to fight. Do you believe the course was uh, not not a hinder? That's the wrong word. A bonus to be able to help you achieve that. Yeah, I I think I mean I think the two things go really well together. Actually, the yeah fighting and um, uh, fighting and putting people back together afterwards. They sort of it's I mean. The, if you look at the traditional martial arts, there's this big thing about healing arts being part of, uh, or the other side of the same coin from from fighting arts, and I think there's there's a truth in that. I mean, obviously, you know, fighting both fighting arts and healing arts have moved on from traditional times, but I think there is still that that synergy, if you like. I think, um, you know, when you're an athlete looking to get the most out of your body, understanding how your body works, understanding the anatomy, the physiology of it, I think that that's really helpful. Um, when you're trying to understand how a, how a joint lock or a, a technique works, when you're trying to understand how to, um, how to break down an opponent, again, understanding the body, that that's a crucial thing. But I think it works the other way around as well. I think, you know, understanding how, how things go wrong, and how things, you know, when when you have an injury, sort of understanding that side of things, I think that makes me a much better therapist. Um, and that's something that um, that I've been appreciating more and more actually since I've um, been been working full time as an osteopath. And I think that's uh, that's something that I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of the the patients who come to me, they they tend to be. Um, quite active people um often sports people often competitive sports people and i think they appreciate the fact that i've um i've been there and i've done that and i can uh, understand from the from the point of view of a sports person um, how important it is to them to be able to do what they do and also you know the demands they put on their body and you know how um how stressful it is, you know, for, for the body to, to go through all that. I think that's uh, that's an important thing. And I, I mean, something I notice actually is that um, people in my industry who don't do any physical sport at all, they can be very good technically. You know, they can understand a lot about about the body. They can understand how everything works. They can, um, you know, they, they can have a lot of knowledge. But from the point of view of an active person, there's always something that feels like it's missing there you know when you go if you go and see somebody who's who, who's not used to being active themselves um i think it's like speak you're speaking different languages you know so i think for me that's something i always look for in you know in any kind of uh, you know, sports injury professional it's have they worked with athletes but also have they I mean, again, not necessarily. I'm not talking about having been a world class athlete or anything like that. I'm talking about have they done sport at a um, seriously, in the sense of seriously for them. You know, have they taken a sport seriously? You know, not have they been really good at it, but have they um, have they put a lot of time and energy into it? And I think that that definitely makes a difference. Well, I, d- I definitely agree with that. That that that's that that comment there, Rose, because you're kind of, because they've got an understanding of what, well, you could say the tendencies the person's going to have because they're going to push their body, in some people's minds, to the extreme. And you, as, uh, I think from a, maybe a more muscular point of view, you're going to utilise the major muscles first, mm. get them, well, tight, 
then utilize the secondary muscles and a lot of people won't get the gist of that because some people might believe well why are you going to push your body to that extreme where you're utilizing the muscles uh for what they're not used to to be able to do the your your sport because well you you're well you're not a machine but you're trying to get it to be the most well, I wouldn't even say efficient you're trying to get the most out of your body that you can and you're trying to get that final balance between being healthy and being injured and it's yeah I think yeah, yeah. Once, and you you brought it up mm -hmm. once you know your body inside and out you'll mm -hmm. kind of get the, the the alarm bells ringing when it is time to well you could say get fixed in in, in in those certain terms and I think when somebody doesn't do sport they may be and you you touched upon that earlier in the episode whereas they'll they'll kind of question you as to why you are you pushing yourself yeah. to those extremes yeah. whereas like well I think as an athlete you kind of don't think about it you're thinking well yeah this yeah. is my There's, end goal yes absolutely uh, There's always that question of, well, why would you want to do that and I think as soon as somebody I mean as a, as a sports injury professional as soon as you ask an athlete that oh, why would you do that you've lost them you've completely lost them because they don't trust you they don't think you get it and if they don't think you get it they're not going to do they're not going to follow your advice yeah so I, I think well as soon as you tell somebody that as soon as you demonstrate that you don't understand their motivation or why they're doing it then you're waste you're wasting their time um no, for me I think you, you've got to be on that same page you've got to be you've got to understand how important it is to them to be able to do what they do even if it's not something that you're interested in you know I mean I, I have people come to see me who do all kinds of sports and it might not be a sport that I play myself but I can appreciate how important it is to them um, and I can sort of draw that parallel with my own experience of okay well mixed martial arts isn't everyone's cup of tea not everyone's going to like that you know there's, there's a lot of people who just aren't going to enjoy it but it's what I do you know so that's uh, and it's the same with any sport I think you know there's different sports are always going to appeal to different people but I suppose it's understanding that mindset and that drive that the the athlete has well in a, in, a, in one essence it, it's it's you identify yourself with that sport so if somebody yeah. can't empathize with it you're kind mm. of knocking what yeah. makes them that person so it's yeah. it's very much oh, in one way very confrontational yeah yeah no i think it's uh, uh i mean i suppose that's one of the things that that has motivated me to to do what i do um is that uh, i wanted to be that sports injury professional who i would have wanted to go and see when i was a competitive athlete you know, that's that's what I always think about. It's like, well, how can I how can I build the clinic that I would have wanted to go to? You know, that's um, I suppose that that's sort of what keeps me on track, if you like. And we come back to like more the MMA side of things, Rosie. What are the kind of most common injuries you see? from that perspective or kind of some of the rehab techniques you kind of see over and over again okay so i mean interestingly with mixed martial arts as with most sports um we do have some sort of acute traumatic injuries you know obviously they're the ones that tend to get the airtime you know you, it's the the leg break video that everyone posts on youtube or you know the, the Everyone's got their favourites that they, yeah. But actually, the the spectacular stuff, that's by far the minority. You know, they're they're actually relatively rare. Um, and again, I mean, the injury statistics uh, for mixed martial arts are not as are not as bad as you might imagine. Just looking at the sport, you know, I think if you look at it compared to other contact sports like rugby, for example, they're broadly similar. Okay. I mean, if anything, I think uh, it's probably slightly safer than rugby. But 
again, it depends what kind of injuries you're looking at. But I think the the challenge for a lot of mixed martial artists tends to be more the the chronic um, degenerative type conditions. So the the ongoing overuse injuries, you know, your tendinopathies, your um, uh, disc problems in the back. I see that a lot. Um, I see a lot of um, meniscus tears in the knee, things like that. Ligament ligament strains. I mean, again, that's maybe more sort of on the acute side, um, but. Uh, Lots, lots of uh, tendon issues, rotator cuff issues around the shoulder. Um, I suppose those are some of the things that I see all all the time. Um, you know, the, the ones that you know walk into my clinic day in day out. Um, and I spend a lot of time talking to people about how to how to prevent these. Um, I mean, both from the point of view of people who've already had an injury, how can we get you back to training? How can we strengthen this so that it won't be a weakness in future? Um, but also from the point of view of people who haven't had an injury, how can we avoid you ending up in this situation? Um, and that's a, that's a hard sell, actually, because when you talk to the young kids who are coming through, you know, about injuries, uh, they don't want to know because they think they're they think they're invulnerable. You know, it's it's not going to happen to them until suddenly it does. And then they want you to fix them by yesterday because they've got a fight at the weekend. Um and that's when, you know, I have to, you wish you had a magic wand. But, um, but yeah, so I think I spend a lot of time talking about injury prevention. Um, and a lot of that comes down to, to targeted strength work, you know, which, again, is this is the crossover between um, rehab, between injury treatment and between strength training. And I think there's that big zone in the middle. Um, a lot of athletes in general, I think, um, fall down that gap between rehab and strength training. As uh, you know, I think if they don't blend into each other, if you don't address that bit in the middle, then that's where you, I think a lot of um, a lot of problems occur. So one of the things that I like to do is to to get people to the point where they're um, they're back to training, and then we'll look at getting them a strength plan. Go on, and I've got. I've actually got um, a, a strength coach who I will pass people on to. I'll, I'll get the, get him to do uh, again, sort of the the late stage rehab, but also the you know the sport specific strength work. And we'll and say, well, okay, um, and he'll take them through those gym sessions. So I think that's um, having that continuity is important. I think. And if we come back to like the, the well, we could probably separate the two injuries. When it comes to say more specifically the rotator cuff injuries, is it because a lot of the the movement is in the frontal plane that that's a, a rise in that injury? That's a that's an interesting question. I think um, yeah. I mean, I think it's. A, why we see so many shoulder injuries is, is an interesting one. I think one of the things is there's just a lot of stresses on the shoulder in mixed martial arts. When you look at the shoulder in in grappling, um, I mean, in, in striking and grappling, there's a lot of competing demands there because obviously, I mean, the, the, when you look at the structure of a shoulder, it's a compromise between mobility and stability. Mm. So we've got this massive range of movement at the shoulder. I mean, if you compare it to the hip, for example, which is the other big ball and socket joint, um, there's a lot more movement at the shoulder than at the hip in general. Um, and it's because the, sh the shoulder socket is quite shallow. So the the muscles need to be able to, to work to stabilise that shoulder joint. Now, when we're talking about things like mixed martial arts, where there's a lot of stress on that shoulder, I mean, you actually have people trying to pull that arm off. You know, people are directly attacking that shoulder joint. Um, and never mind anything else. You know, never mind the the contact from collisions and all of those things, or the you know the overuse when you're hitting pads with it, and all of those stresses as well. Um, when you so when you look at that combined, those muscles are having to do an awful lot of work. And it's to be expected that sometimes they're going to run into problems. 
you know so whether that happens initially because of a trauma so you can have something that started out as um, a bit of a muscle strain or even an acute dislocation or something like that um, and then very often if that isn't treated correctly then people will tend to compensate for that by changing their movement patterns that can lead on to problems of its own and so on and so on so you t end up with this sort of these layers of um you know dysfunction on top of each other and i mean the interesting thing from my point of view as a clinician is then going back and unpacking that um i mean one of the interesting things actually with shoulders is that i find that um people who feed pads so boxing trainers kickboxing tie boxing trainers who hold pads for people um because they can be doing that for i mean sometimes eight hours a day you know they've got personal sessions one-to-one -one sessions with fighters they can spe spend a lot of time holding pads and that's putting it an awful lot of strain through the rotator cuff in one particular direction um and again that's a in some ways that's a recipe for overuse injuries and some of the people I see, actually, some of the people I treat are people who've done that for years on end. And they sort of end up in my clinic with, with rotator cuff problems. And then, I mean, in, in some cases, they're saying to me, well, look, I can't stop doing this because this is my job. You know, I have to pay the bills. So I have to keep doing this. And what can you do to, to fix me and get me back to doing that? Um, and that's always, like I said, that, that's, that's massively challenging um because again you i mean on the one hand you want to be able to sort of take them out of that environment and take a step back and build things up but on the other hand you know that they're going to go out and do what they do because you know they're in that situation where it's very difficult not to um so you have to sort of find ways around that and uh so this is i mean it's the sort of problem that keeps my job interesting um but like you, you, you were saying there, Rosie. I think it's you could say they're well, not polar opposites in terms of the the, the actual uh, strength strength training you'd have to do, utilize for it, and also the the rehab for the shoulder because they're being and, and you. I think you raised a good point with the, the, the shoulder being itself being attacked. Whereas I think oh, without going outside of the rules, would say maybe rugby or football, that's not going to really arise in any other sport. So the actual training you're going to have to implement to be able to, to strengthen that joint, it would be quite difficult because the normal confines of what you'd have to do to it, to strengthen it, would be to, well, to strengthen the actual, free, the actual joint itself is quite difficult, uh, not quite difficult, quite easy because you're only looking to improve the movement and stability, whereas that, you're having to be able to, to well, protect a joint that is supposed to be be able to move. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's difficult because there are so many different functions that the shoulder performs in, I mean, in sport in general, but in mixed martial arts especially, which when you look at it, the shoulder in striking works very differently from the shoulder when you're grappling, when you're throwing or taking people down. Um, and again, you know, when you get into the groundwork game, that's a whole different thing as well. Um, and then you're, you're trying to balance those different functions. So what's what's good for one doesn't necessarily work so well for another. Um, and I think that's, um, again, like I say, it's, it's one of the things that makes... Um, Mixed martial arts interesting, I think, is the is those competing demands. You know, the demands of being a striker and the demands of being a wrestler sometimes contradict each other. You know, sometimes um, in trying to do both well is uh, is an interesting problem. Um, it's, you know, you're always trying to walk that tightrope, if you like. And I think from from the point of view of somebody working with fighters, that makes my job interesting as well, you know, because you're trying to uh, advise people as to how best to walk that tightrope and uh, and how best to uh, sort of stay, stay away from the, the most common pitfalls. And, and then also the, the ones you brought up with the, the disc problems and the meniscus pro uh, tears and things like that. 
do you find that that's just over overuse of the actual joint themselves, or is it the style of fighting the person may have that is causing those injuries? I mean, sometimes it, it can come down to a range of factors. I think um, sometimes it's just plain overuse. Um, sometimes a, a lot depends on body type as well. I think. I think people. I've, I notice that fighters with different body types tend to gravitate towards different ways of fighting, and sometimes that can predispose people towards particular injuries rather than others. I think. Um, I mean, some people are naturally very flexible. For example, some people are much less flexible. Um, now, both of those types people will get problems, but they'll get different problems. So people who are too flexible get um, get different problems from people who are not flexible enough. And uh, again, I mean, we see this with, with bats all the time. You get people who um, have quite restricted movement of their lower back and they're likely to get certain kinds of problems. But then you've got people who've, who are very flexible um, who may use that flexibility as part of their style, as uh, part of what they do. Um but that in itself can be can become problematic, you know. That can uh, lead to to certain kinds of injuries being more likely. So, so again, that's that's an interesting thing when I'm when I'm working with people. It's interesting when somebody walks into my clinic, I've got an idea immediately of how they're likely to move, you know, just based on their body type. Um, and then, obviously, I mean, I'm. I need to check that out. You know, that's that's not my first um, my my first idea is not always correct with that. But it's then interesting to sort of see. Well, sometimes when people don't move the way I expect, there's a reason for that as well. You know, mm. and that and sort of trying to unpick that, trying to play the detective there. Um, that's again, you know, it's it's why it's a it's why I love that job. Um, and I think it's a good point in terms of like the. Flexibility, uh, flexibility of somebody because oh, well, some people outside of the health profession may think oh I've got this certain nagging feeling be it I think probably this problem is probably very extreme but say for mm-hmm. exi- 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 in- instance if you've got tightness in I don't know we'll say the lower back they're going to pinpoint it specifically specifically to that area whereas coming back to my earlier point of knowing your body as an athlete you know the final destination of the problem is there but there's going to be an original to the point so it could it could be somewhere completely different which is the root cause of the actual tightness or stiffness that you're that you're yeah yeah i mean and this is this is something that we, we you know uh, as an osteopath we look at all the time is you know where's the pain but also what other what else is contributing to that you know where's the pain coming from um and that can be you know what's what's generating the pain but also you know mechanically what is it that the person is doing that's leading to that problem building up where it is you know and sometimes again you, you can I mean you see this if somebody has an ankle injury for example and that changes the way they walk which then has an effect on the knees the hips the lower back um, and then all the way up the spine so sometimes you can see those changes just from the way that person has been has been walking you know if they maybe if somebody's been on crutches for a few weeks that then leads to a whole cascade of mechanical changes elsewhere in the body um, and I think that's uh, yeah both from the point of view of of an athlete you know but also I mean I think a good sports injury professional you know a good therapist is somebody who can look at that and try and unpick that and um, and see what's going on and also recognising that different people are different. So what what works for one person or the way one person compensates for an injury is going to be different from the way somebody else does. So you've got to look at how that's working for that individual based on their body type and their way of moving and how they um, – their sport and all of those factors. But then also it's probably, it's probably a good question to ask you, Rosie. In terms of, say, for mixed martial artists themselves – Mm. Have they got a higher, you could say, 
pain threshold to be able to it's not really withstand those discomforts mm-hmm. it's maybe say more specifically being able to block it out from a certain perspective and be able to just like I touched upon a little bit with myself earlier in the show you, you're just going to put it to one side yeah. oh, I've got the, these well tightness in my body I can't stop training because of whatever may be arising f- further down the line and obviously the demands their joints have to um, endure do you see that they are probably of that nature that they're able to block out more so than other sports athletes themselves? I think, I mean, pain is highly context dependent. So pain threshold um, depends very much on the environment the person's in, who's around them, what are they doing, what their motivations are, you know, what their reason is for, you know, overcoming this pain um all of these factors you know if you take somebody if you put a fighter in a fight i mean there've been times when i've been in a fight and i've i've got hit with a shot and i thought that sounds like it really ought to hurt but it didn't you know it's you get hit you can get hit with a clean shot and it's it's almost surreal because there's just no pain there it's your your brain has subtracted that already you know before it gets to your consciousness um so it's not a question of overcoming pain you just don't feel it um just because there's that much adrenaline going through your body um everything that because of the context because of the environment um you don't feel it so it's not a question of willpower it's just not there and then there'll be other situations when for example you're in training and you know you're doing a heavy conditioning session and it is really painful and it's a question of sort of having to push through that um, and it's a different kind of feeling um so i think i mean and then you, you know you can take a fighter who you know somebody who they'll fight five five minute rounds with one of the best in the world in their weight class and you know come out with all kinds of bruises and maybe even injuries and and they'll be absolutely fine about that um but stick a needle in them and they might be you know um it's 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 funny how um people pain is not a universal thing you know people can be good good with one kind of pain but not with a different kind of pain. You know, you know, there's people who are, like I said, they're quite happy with you. You can give them the hardest conditioning session and they'll be fine with it, you know. But um, if you if they get a bit of sunburn, they're a bit, um, or, you know, an insect bite. Or, it's, like I say, it's, it's a funny thing because so much depends on... On, on the on the context um so i think you know when, when it comes to sort of overcoming pain or pain tolerance pain yeah pain tolerance as opposed to pain threshold um it's i think i think a lot depends i mean you you can train yourself to some extent because the more you get used to a particular kind of pain um again it's like with conditioning you know the, the more you're used to doing those hard conditioning rounds the less it bothers you you know, the first time you do it you think you're going to die um but if you do it week in week out you kind of get used to it to a point um then if you have a few weeks off and go back to it you want to go i've forgotten it was this bad um so it is something that you can build up but i think you've got to have um behind that you've got to have the motivation to do that you know if you if you don't have that motivation if you don't have that that drive to overcome it then you're always going to struggle. There's when when you get to that point where it becomes difficult, there'll always be a reason not to do it. But on the but on the one hand, in terms of the motivation, you could class. And this is probably my own judgment now. You could class that as an essence of your job. It's got to be done to be able to progress within that field yeah so so it's for me looking at it it's a no-brainer even though 
well, if I use myself as the example, I didn't like that particular essence of the training. I still had to do it, so it's it's yeah. it's it's kind of a catch twenty two yeah. from people I mean, I, looking I, from the outside. Yeah, I think it, it, at that point it becomes a question of well, if you if what you like about the sport, if you if what you like about your job outweighs the bit that you don't like, you know, then you you suck it up and you get on with it. Um, but I think and I think there are people out there. I mean. The people who are ultimately successful are the people for whom, you know, the, the desire to be successful and the desire to make it in that field outweighs the, the discomfort of what they have to go through to get there. But then you have people who are, maybe they like the idea of doing it. I mean, you see this in fighting all the time. There's lots of people who like the idea of being a fighter, but they don't actually like the experience of being a fighter. Um, and they're the ones who, when things get tough, there's always a reason not to do it. You know, it's, oh, my knee hurts, my shoulder hurts, I'm a bit tired today, I don't feel very well, I don't want, you know, and and that's when you, you kind of realise, well, actually, maybe maybe you don't want this badly enough. I think that's something, I mean, it's an individual thing, there's, there's no judgement there on my part, you know, it's not everyone... Not everyone does want to be a fighter, but I think it's recognising the difference between something that you like the idea of. I mean, I like the idea of being able to speak another language, but I don't like it enough to actually go through the process of doing it. You know, I and I know that because I'm not doing it. If I if I if I wanted it that badly, I'd be doing it right now. Um, so, like I say, I, much as I like the idea, and I mean, it may be at some point in the future, my motivational change for whatever reason, you know, maybe if I want to move to another country, and then I'll suddenly become motivated to do it, you know. Um, but at the moment, the motivation isn't enough to overcome the the fact that I've got a lot of other things that I want to do. Um, and I think it's the same with, you know, with sport. You kind of, if if your motivation isn't enough to overcome the the difficulties, then it's maybe time to recognise, well, actually, much as I like the idea of this, maybe that's not really what I want to do. Um, and again, I think it's fine to say that. It's the diff- the problem is when people um, people don't recognise that. And I think, like I say, we see this all the time, people who especially in the amateur ranks you know where people want to be they want to be able to say to their mates down the pub that they're a cage fighter yeah. um and uh they uh it's, they go through a process of you know they'll, they'll do enough training to get somebody to put them in, in for a fight and they'll go through a process of training for that and they'll you know they've, they've got their profile picture of them in a fight stance and you know on the on a poster and everything and you know they've got lots of training photos on their facebook page when push comes to shove they actually don't want it that badly and very often they'll find a reason not to do it you know they'll get sick that last week or they'll get injured or they'll you know have a family emergency and they won't be able to fight and they end up messing everyone around including their opponent um i think that's something that you see a lot of particularly in the fight world um i think um, the thing I put that down to is that lots of people want to think that they're a fighter. Um, do, you, do you think that comes back to the, the early essence of us of, as humans then, of, obviously that fight or flight response then, that people want to... Yes, to, to a point, to a point. I think it's, I mean, culturally as well, we have that thing where, um, and I'm going to stereotype because it it, it, it's a common stereotype, young males in particular like the idea of being able to fight you know they, they want to think of themselves as fighters even if they've never thrown a punch in their life they like to think they can fight because you know it's it's what men do right um and I'm, i mean this 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 kind of makes me laugh actually because this is something i see a lot when you get when you get beginners walk into a um a mixed martial arts class or a jiu-jitsu class and they've watched a few ufcs and they they've never never done any fighting but they just assume that being male, that they're going to be able to, they're going to be able to do something. And usually it's, you know, if we're doing a little bit of sparring or something like that, and um, 
I kind of look at me and you can kind of see the thought process going, okay, well, I don't want to spy any of these big guys because they, 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 they look a bit handy, but I should be able to, I should be able to beat you up because you're smaller female. Um, and generally it's uh, sort of when they get a few minutes in and they realize this isn't going their way, um, you, that, that's generally, sometimes people almost have a bit of a, um, a crisis of masculinity, if you like. It's uh, that's when people can sometimes go a bit crazy. You know, they'll they'll start trying to use all their strength and you know slam out of things and you know get. And it's like, well, dude, chill out. You know, I'm 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 going I'm going to catch you with something because this is what I do. I, I'm a professional fighter. You know, it's you've watched a few UFCs. You know, you're you're not going to suddenly be able to do this, um, and that's okay because it's a skill like anything else. You know, if you if you, um, you know, if you're if you're playing a, a professional female tennis player and you don't play tennis, you don't suddenly expect to be able to beat her just because she's a woman. But with fighting, guys do that all the time. You know, it's um, uh, and. Uh, you, the the phrase I hear all the time. You quite, you're quite strong for a girl. That's like, uh, uh, I, resist, I, I I tried to resist the urge to say, no, nah, it's just because you're a bit weak for a bloke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, it's, I think it, it's not understanding that, that this is a sport. You know, this is this is a skill. This is a skill that you learn like anything else. Um, but I. I suppose I, I, I blame that culture that uh, it's you know every every guy wants to think that they can fight or not every guy I'm I'm, I'm generalising I'm stereotyping that's that's not uh, not it's not universal but there, there there is a lot there is some truth in, in it. And my penultimate question for you, Rosie, and something we haven't touched upon: what kind of mindset do you have to have? to want to engage in a sport that's in a locked cage can you <laughs> can it divulge kind of what what what's kind of some of the thought process there yeah that's that's an interesting one i mean i i used to joke that um people who do this uh they they, they have demons you know people who are, uh, are happy and well adjusted don't do this shit uh, <laughs> Uh, of the fighters I know, um, I, mean, I know a few who are happy and well adjusted. In fairness, um, but I think I think a lot of us have our our reasons for for getting into it in the first place. You know, I think um, whether that's our own personal demons or whether that's uh, you know want. I think a lot of the t- a lot of it is for me at least. I don't want to speak for anyone else. Um, it's wanting to to prove to myself that I could do that. That's that's why I got into it. And I mean, in hindsight, it's crazy because that's a lot of trouble to go to to prove to yourself that you can fight. Um, <laughs> you know, twelve year professional MMA career is perhaps overdoing it a bit. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot about myself along the way. Um, I think sort of. Almost the, the point when I realised that I was reaching retirement, I think, um, the point where I realised that maybe I didn't need to do this anymore, was when I, it's almost when I re- started to realise that I felt comfortable with myself. And that's when you sort of start to think, actually, I don't have that burning desire to, to get into a cage with somebody and punch them in the face. Um I think the more I became comfortable with myself, the less I felt the need to do that. Um, which is a funny thing. I think it's it's a sort of paradox there because at the same time, I I think a lot of the that understanding in myself and a lot of that um, a lot of the, the ways I've developed and the ways that I've. Uh, um, over the years, the things that I've got better at, a lot of that comes down to down to mixed martial arts, down to the sport. You know, the experiences I've had within that. Um, 
and I said, I think I just got to the point where I thought, well, it's, I mean, I still love the sport. I still love to train jiu-jitsu and, you know, I, I find it fascinating. Um, and again, it's one of the reasons why I still love working with fighters. Um, but I just don't have that burning desire to, to do it at that level. I mean, is Sometimes I think it would be nice, you know, when I watch, every time I watch my friends fighting, for example, I go, oh, I could get back in there, I could do this. You know, I've got a few more fights left in me. Um, but then I realise that I haven't, I don't want that enough, again, coming back to that idea, um, I don't want that enough to sacrifice everything else I've got in my life at the moment and to, to put everything else on the back burner and to go and, you know, get back in training and to... Um, you know, to get to that level that I'd need to be at. And you kind of think, well, actually, much as I might like the idea of doing it, I don't want the reality now. I, once once upon a time I did, you know, and once upon a time I was all about that. And I think I've just got to the point in my life where there's, there's other things that I want to do. I think. And that's, for me, I think that's healthy. You know, I think that's... Uh, uh, there's when you think about it a lifetime is a long time you know it's hopefully for most of us um and within that lifetime you know there's there's time to, to have to become passionate about a number of different things you know you, you go through different phases and you can you can totally immerse yourself in it at the time and then take a step back and say okay yeah, that was good, but now it's time to move on and do something else. And I think that's that's the way I see it. You know, I, I'm going. I'm taking the lessons that I've learned from it, and and the um, you know, all of the the great things I've got out of it, and kind of going, okay, well, it's time. To, it's time for me to do something else now. And I think that's uh, like I say, for me, that was that was the, it was the right time to do it, and it's it was a healthy development. Um, so. But would you would you agree that it's an anecdotal way of an athlete perceiving a lifetime? Because I I very much look at things like that. It's very much um, how would you term it? Cyclical, very much periodizing the life as you would do a training program. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think I mean the way to look at it is when you're in there, you've got to give it everything because. That's your you're you're an athlete for a relatively short period of time, so you you've got to make the most of that time that you've got and enjoy it, you know. And, um, but I always tell people, particularly fighters, you know, I say you've got to keep you've got to give some thought to what comes afterwards, you know. You have a have a plan because then when it when the time comes, it's you've got something to move on to. Mm. And that's really important, I think, because I think um, with fighting especially, retiring is hard. Well, retiring is easy, but staying retired is hard. Um, and I think one of the temptations, for me, if it wasn't for the fact that I've got so much else going on in my life and there's so many other things that I want to do and, you know, there's so many other things I'm excited about, the temptation would absolutely be there to go back and have another fight. And... With combat sports, that rarely ends well. You know, you see it all the time. You see people, you know, they're retired, they've gone off, they've done the thing, and then a few years later, they end up going back to it. And um, I think there's a few reasons for that. You know, it can be financial. It can be because, I mean, it can be because they really miss competing. Um, and again, I can sympathise with that because I do all the time. Um, I just don't quite miss it enough because I've got, I've got a full life, you know, with with lots of other things. But um, but I think having that plan to go on to that's really an important thing. So you know, when I talk to fighters now, I you know, say, well, you've got to put everything into it at the time. You know, you can't be doing it half-hearted because you only get one shot at this. But at the same time, have an idea what you're going to do when you finish. You know, have an idea what you're going to do afterwards because you're going to be there a long time. You're going to be a retired fighter much longer than you're a fighter um, and doing that well is as important as doing the fighting well if not more so and my final question for you Rosie before we wrap up the episode today 
if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I have a tattoo on my left leg. I have a tattoo. Um, it's the only tattoo I have. Um, and it's the Greek for know thyself. It's over the temple of Apollo. And that's something that I, I suppose it's a life lesson that I found particularly useful. And I think a lot of this comes down to understanding your body, understanding how you work, but also understanding your mind, your motivation, why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and being able to look at that, sort of take a step back and look at that um, from the outside, if it were a little bit I think sort of having having that understanding is really important um, both for getting the most out of yourself you know being able to perform at the highest levels but also making sure that you're performing in the right areas at the right time you know knowing why you're doing what you're doing and doing it for the right reasons and I think those things are for me that's that's been quite important I think so I suppose, yeah, know thyself. That's that's one of the uh, one of the mottos, if you like, that I try to try to live by. So once again, Rosie, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thanks, James. It's been been great to talk to you. I've been, enjoyed it, um, and uh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.